Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Since it's Thanksgiving time, I'm happy to welcome back to the show the King of King Sports, Bo James. And since it's Thanksgiving, we're going to be talking about Starcade. Although only the Starcades that actually took place on Thanksgiving, which is the Jim Crockett era shows from 83 to 87. We're going to talk about what are some underrated matches on each of the shows. And then we're going to be talking about some of the big matches. The Flair for the Gold, Flair versus Dusty, the Skywalkers match, Flair versus Ronnie Garvin, the I Quit match, and a bunch of other stuff. And then Bo's going to talk about what he's got going on this year for his Southern States Wrestling promotion in Kingsport for Thanksgiving and how people can help donate for some underprivileged children this holiday season. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. For people of a certain age, Thanksgiving means wrestling and football, and I don't mean the kind with the World Cup that started today in Qatar. To talk about the old days of Thanksgiving wrestling in the territory era, as well as one a little closer to him at home this Thanksgiving, I'm happy to welcome back the King of Kingsport, Bo James. We have not had you on. I did not realize this. We have not had you on since... uh, all of your health issues. So why don't you start by uh, telling everybody how you're doing these days? I am doing great. Um, you know, this time last year, I was told by not one, not two, but three different doctors that I was a dead man walking and that uh, I had a very small chance of surviving unless I had the procedures done. And of course, with the pandemic and everything else that held all the procedures and stuff off until January. And so the holiday season last year was pretty much me sitting here staring at the walls and being very sick, but, uh, had the procedure done. I started the recovery. I did exactly what the doctors told me. Um, then I started coaching ball in the spring to, to be active and get out and do something. And, Thank God I was able to go back to wrestling in June. And, you know, I'm not a not a full-time wrestler anymore. I don't think that will ever be back to where I'm wrestling several nights a week. But I am wrestling a few times a month. So I get to make some towns and do what I love and see people. And I get to get out of this house. But I feel good. I just had um, last month I had a follow-up with the heart doctors, all that stuff. Everything is good. Blood pressure, oxygen levels, heart rate. I mean, everything was exactly what it's supposed to be, uh, perfect. So I'm doing great. Good. That's good to hear. I know uh, last time I was out there was in the summer when we went and saw you coach the a t-ball game. So yep. how, how was that? I As fun as you made it out to be? I, I I love it. I'm already counting down. Uh, you know, once we get through the holidays, uh, I'll have to, you know, take about a month break, uh, from 
everything else I'm doing to do the stuff I got to do every, you got to take classes. They make you take, you know, some CPR classes, some, you know, different stuff to be in case something happens to one of the kids. So I'll be doing that the first of the year. And then we start practice, uh, first of March and we start playing the first of April. So we're almost back to baseball season. Which is good because we are talking before we recorded about how seemingly overnight winter came uh, to, to <laughs> you you out there in the in Tennessee and me here on the East Coast where it was 70, 80 one day and suddenly back with frost warnings and uh, defrosting your car in the morning. Yes, last last Thursday it was 80 degrees. I was out in short, shorts and t-shirt. A cold front came through. It rained that night. I had to go to Knoxville the next day to do some stuff with CNN. It kept it just downpour all day, and the temperature just kept dropping. Saturday, so we went from 80 degrees on Thursday to seeing the first snow here in the mountains on Saturday. That's how fast it came. Yeah, that's about how it was here. I know I was I was certainly wearing shorts after Halloween, and then you know suddenly, either last week or this week, it was like I had I had made a vow to myself to not turn the heat on in the house until December. But one night it was just I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, oh, I can't I can't wait another two weeks. I've got to turn the heat on. So, you know, I dealt with that, that horrible heater smell, yeah. you know, for a couple of hours and then went back to bed. So, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so is that just the regular heater smell or have I started a fire? You know, you can't, what? it takes an hour to figure that out. Well, it's one of those things where when you grow up and your father's an electrician, like the one thing you always had to make sure to do was to keep that like foot radius around the baseboards in the house where the electric heater is because it's like you can have as much junk as you want stored up but make sure that you've got you know nothing clogging the heaters and you've got flow so that that at least you know as uh pack ratty as this house may be the at least the heat the heaters that are on are safe the heaters in other rooms are off that are now just storage but you know the rooms that count you know they're ready to go yeah. Well, so we're here on th- we're here on Thanksgiving week, which, like I said, traditionally Thanksgiving was one of the biggest days for wrestling in the territory era. So, what was uh, Thanksgiving like in the Knoxville slash Southeastern Territory where you are? Uh, well, you you have to remember I'm also part of the Crockett Territory. And so we would see the build for both the Continental slash Southeastern and Starcade. So, um, you know, Knoxville would run on Thanksgiving night. And then after the war and it went black and all that stuff and they came back and then Continental came back, they would do Knoxville and Birmingham, Thanksgiving afternoon, Thanksgiving night. They did the same thing on Christmas. So we would see the build to that, but we would see the build to Starcade. So, and it was exciting. And then you had to make a decision at one point 
Do I go to Johnson City to watch Starcade on the big screen, or do I go to Knoxville to see live wrestling at the Civic Coliseum? So what's that? Uh, what's that commute for those guys working two shows on Thanksgiving? How many? How many miles is that? Oh, it's so well. It's over. Let me. I will Google it. It's about a four-hour trip. So two hundred miles. Uh, but well. You also got to think this is back in the 80s, and the interstates were not what they are now, so it may have been a little bit longer. Um, let me look up Knoxville. You can, it's a pretty easy trip now. But I'm sure back then it was not that easy. It's a three-hour and 43-minute uh, three three trip now, 257 miles. So I'd say four and a half back then. So it was pretty much uh, they would wrestle in one, come out of the ring, put their sweats on, get in the car, drive to the other, do it again. I was about to say it was pretty much have your match, get on the road, get yeah. there. And uh, hit a Waffle House late at night somewhere because that's the only thing open on Thanksgiving. At least it was back then. And they're probably also working Black Friday somewhere. Yes. And they wrestled on Wednesday night somewhere. Well, one of the things and I figured... Okay, here, go ahead. Here's something. For, for forever, we didn't know that there were two events. We thought we got the only Thanksgiving event. And Birmingham thought they got the only – we didn't know they were running two towns on the same day <laughs> because the Birmingham TV and the Knoxville TV, you know, they didn't overlap at all. Um, Chattanooga might have known that because that, you know, a little less than halfway coming from Knoxville to Birmingham. But Chattanooga may have seen both some overlap uh, or maybe not. You know, I, I'm not sure. But we thought we were getting the only Thanksgiving event of the year. It's fun. It's, you know, the whole thing, you know, and you listen to Ron talk about it, you know, that, you know, eventually when they're running two, you know, in the 70s, when they're running two territories at the same times, it's just crazy. Yeah. When it when it's the same people, I mean, more or less running both of them, even if they have, like, different bookers and different crews. But still – the logistics of doing something like that in the late 70s before you had lots of modern technology is pretty amazing. Yeah. And it's pretty tiresome. And, you know, I I don't think we'll ever see it. Well, I know we will never see another time like that because technology and everything overlapping and we see everything from every part of the world now. So, you know, they could have a guy – get hurt here and do interviews, send in interviews where he's healing up, coming back, and I'm going to get even. But yet we had no clue that he was wrestling on the Gulf Coast <laughs> during those three, four, five, six months that he was selling the angle here. Yeah, there's, I mean, for, for a number of reasons, you know, you can't get back to that level of kayfabe. And certainly the main reason may just be technology more than anything else. Yeah. Well, one of the things I figured we could do, since we were going to talk about 
Thanksgiving, you talked about being part of the Crockett territory there, is some of the more, I would say maybe underrated matches from the Crockett era of Starcade. We're not going to go past that, so we're really going to talk about like maybe the first three or four years of Starcade. And you know, I went back and I watched a bunch of them getting ready. But I was—is there a match off the top of your head? Like if we if we put aside the famous matches for a second, and we could talk about them eventually. But there is there a match where you like watch. 83, 84, 85, 86, and you say, why does no one ever talk about that match? Mark Youngblood, Wahoo McDaniel against Orton and Slater. That's funny. That's that's the first one I had on my list, too. That that match, my gosh, it was great, but, it's, it, but it was buried amongst so many key matches and historical matches. That That match was a main event anywhere in the Crockett territory. And most people don't even remember it. And what was it like? Third, fourth on the card? It was in the so middle. It's, it's fourth. Here is, uh, since we're doing Starcade 83, here's Starcade 83. Uh, match one is the Assassins, which is Jody Hamilton and Hercules Hernandez at the time, versus Rufus R. Jones and Bugsy McGraw. Then Johnny Weaver and Scott McGee versus Kevin Sullivan and Mark Lewin. Then Carlos Colon versus Abdullah for, I guess, your Puerto Rico offer match. Yeah. Then then Wahoo and Mark Youngblood versus Slater and Norton to fourth. Then uh, Charlie Brown versus Kabuki. Then the dog collar match. Then the tag match with Steamboat and Youngblood versus the Briscoes. And then Flair and Race. So it's, yeah, it's right in the middle, but there's nothing at stake. I mean, you've got to continue. I mean, you've got it tied into, you know, Flair and Race's angle with the bounty on Flair that Orton and Slater collected. But there's really not any overarching importance to it compared to some of the other stuff on the show. But yeah. it's but it's an amazingly solid, well-wrestled match. It's funny, I went back and I read what the Observer said, and people were telling Dave that Bob Wharton was the best worker on the show, and think about all the people on that show. Yeah. And, and very well, me may be correct because man Orton was so good he was so good but so was Slater too and so was Wahoo and and Mark Youngblood and and that's four tough dudes too and and man they were laying it in yeah it's a very I mean not surprisingly it's a very it's a very stiff match as you would kind of expect with certainly Wahoo and Slater and Orton yeah. And the the funniest thing about the match is is afterwards and I don't know if there's a story about this that you might know. But um Slater and Orton are trying to injure Wahoo. 
So they do the deal where they stick, where there's one guy on, or Orton is on the floor, and he holds Wahoo's arm out over the ring so that Slater's going to jump off the top onto Wahoo's arm and quote-unquote break it or whatever. But he starts to do it, and then he stops, and then he climbs down, and then there's some stuff going on, and then Orton climbs up to the top rope, and then Orton jumps off on. So it was like, did they miscommunicate originally, or did Slater not want – like, it's, it, it seems very odd when you watch it back. Yeah. Uh, I, I think maybe Slater got up there and said, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Because he, he was not a high spot guy, really, you know. <laughs> so, uh, or or it just may have been the tease, and then you know, because sometimes the threat of violence is more effective than the actual act of violence. So maybe that. Maybe they're waiting on Mark to make a save. You know, I don't know. It's just, but yeah, I think there's some kind of communication breakdown there. But it's a, it's a little thing, but it's, it's funny when you watch it and you're like, that's kind of weird. And yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's not like you'd uh, attribute Dick Slater to not necessarily, again, not necessarily a high spot guy, but you know, I would think if there's a guy that has no fear to do something, it'd be Dick Slater. Yeah. yeah. But the, uh, but yeah, watching Starcade 83, it's sort of, there's a couple, of, you know, just odd things that, you know, I'm sure you've heard, uh, Jimmy talk about the match with Kabuki, where it's funny that a lot of that match is built around Kabuki using the claw, which is just funny considering the amount of times he spent in Texas. Where I'm sure he was probably never actually allowed to use the claw himself. Yeah. And, and, and here, here's the thing: um, they, you know, Starcade is in Greensboro. So by the time that you get to Thanksgiving night, pretty much. All these main events, they've already seen Valentine and Piper how many times over the last four or five months. They've seen Valiant and Kabuki, Briscoe's Youngblood Steamboat. Uh, they hadn't seen Flair and Race because that was, you know, the main event they built. But so they're having to have a different match um, on Thanksgiving night for the blow off. And I've always wondered about this, too, because it may be that, okay, we have did everything that we can do. The only thing that's left is, uh, Jimmy son, I'll put the claw on you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they already did the miss. They, they did the karate. They, you know, they have did everything. So let's have the match around the claw. And, and Probably from Kabuki seeing it used in Texas, and 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 it makes sense for it, that to be the kind of you know again when you go back to your 1980s stereotypical Japanese wrestlers, 
you know, they all used quote unquote nerve holds or spikes yeah. or whatever. So like a claw hold really isn't like outside what you would expect that kind of wrestler to be using. You know, you throw in the whole, he learned it in the Orient, blah, blah, blah kind of deal. And it makes sense. Yeah. Just to- Tojo used a, he would use a claw in the armpit or in the stomach. Uh, Kabuki used variations of it. Uh, so did, uh, Matsuda. Um, who else was wrestling in America at the time? But yeah, you know, all of them did. They all had the chop. They had some kind of nerve hold and they had some kind of sleeper. Yeah. I mean, in a way, there's sort of like, you know, there's definitely a template. And then I guess, you know, depending on the relative skill level of, you know, if you've got a guy like Mr. Saito who can do all of that stuff, plus all the suplexes, you know, you add that to his repertoire, you've got a guy, you know, who's a little more basic than you could, you could have gotten by in the seventies and eighties by just doing all the tropes. Yeah. And and they called Saito Mr. Torture for a reason. Because he could hook and he could shoot and he could fight. <laughs> he he was an all around bad dude. Well, I know I don't know if he told it on one of your shows, but I know there's that story that I think Ron has told about Dundee. I think watching Mr. Saito and being like I don't want to get put in the ring with this guy. And then like the last night he was there, like <laughs> they put him in the ring with him to like, I don't know if it was like, like take the suplex or takes uh, something that Saito that did. He hated taking the gut wrench side salto suplex. Oh, he hated that. And uh, so that's, yeah, probably that's why he did not. <laughs> Because he used to say, that is not a working move. That is a shoot move. <laughs> so when I used to work with Bill a lot, I, I would do it just to rib him. I wouldn't never give him the suplex, but I would hook like I was going for it just to see how he was going to keep me from doing it this time. <laughs> That's funny. And I think the uh we mentioned – Piper and Valentine's feud, you know, I think we all know in our minds how violent that dog collar match is, but it's not until you rewatch it that you realize it's even more violent than you remember. Yeah, especially for the time. I mean, there'd always been blood. They'd always been gimmicks, you know, um, it, it is what I, Picture a Ron Wright Whitey Caldwell chain, you know, that kind of brutality because I, I never got to see that. I've only seen pictures of Ron and Whitey, but I've heard many eyewitness accounts of their matches and just how brutal they were. And it's, and Piper and Valentine took that on the road through Christmas. They did it in all the spot towns. So, man, they were getting beat up for three weeks. Well, hopefully they took some of the spots out, like the wrapping it around their mouth and around their eyes. 
I mean, you know, it's yeah, like you say, you expect a certain level of brutality in that match, but it's and you know, okay, yeah, you can do a spot where you hang the guy or tie him up in the corner and that's all well and good. But yeah, the the like putting the chain around your eyes or gouging it in your mouth. It's like that's you know, that's even a little extreme for twenty twenty two tastes properly. It hurts. I've had it done to me. It hurts. No, that's um yeah. Back to Ron and Whitey, this just came to my mind. You know, that was the big blow off match in East Tennessee was the chain match. And every now and again, say every three, four years, it, they would have the chain match and it would not end it. So they would come back with the chain inside the bull wire, which was a fence around the ring, you know, an early cage system. Uh, and Don Wright told me one time, he said, you know why we only had those matches once a year? And I said, did you make them special? He said, no, no. Cause why'd he beat us to death? <laughs> he said, he said, you would wake up the next morning and you would have indentions of that chain from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. So, yeah, they were, they were brutal. And you look at Valentine, just working with Valentine, I've had car wrecks easier than that. He was there. He was snug, solid, stiff. Um, so put something in his hand to swing is not a smart idea. No, and Piper. I don't think I'd want to give Piper a chain easy either because yeah. you just I don't think you would know what Piper would any would, would likely do. What would come what would pop into his head maybe that you hadn't even thought of. Right. Yeah, he's creative. <laughs> the other uh match from Starcade eighty three is the that I wanted to talk about was the title match. And I don't know if you've watched it lately. But that might be one of the most infuriating matches I've watched due to the way Gene Kaniski kept inserting himself into the match. Where he would constantly break everything up, and it's like, I understand you're a troubleshooting referee, but it's like you're disrupting the flow, when I don't think that's probably the point of why you're there. I mean, you're basically there to get over that you're a former world champion. But he's he's out of position on the finish, too. Yeah, it's um, I'm I'm trying to think of the quote that Harley had about the the match. It was something about we made it work, even though Gene stumbled and fumbled and bumbled through it. Um, I don't think either one of them were very happy with the match. And if you have seen other matches with race and flair, that's not the best one. Well, it's funny that if you look at these, to talk about all of these early Starcades, you know, flair's best match is probably the one he has with Ron Garvin, which is the one that, like, no one hardly ever talks about. Yeah. 
Because 84, it's short and ruined by the gimmick finish of the blood stoppage. 85 is, you know, an okay match, but it's it's built around A, you know, Dusty wearing the loaded boot, and then the the finish, which kind of ruins the match. But and it's like, but 86... Again. Good. That is not that's not the best Flair Dusty match, you know. That's probably the the best known one. But I saw a couple of live that were better than the Starcade matches that were just you know in Johnson City on a Wednesday night. But yeah, it's it's funny that. I mean, I guess it's probably true. I guess you could probably maybe draw the parallels with WrestleMania, at least the early ones, where, you know, the famous matches aren't necessarily the best matches. I mean, Steamboat and Savage, you know, is sort of a weird, different beast. But, you know, all the matches that sort of people talk about aren't, you know, Hogan Andre is not, you know, anything to write. I mean, it, it effectively does what it's supposed to do, which is. You know, but you know, if you're, I, I think that I think Hogan Andre now is more appreciative than it was when it happened, because now everybody knows the story about how much pain and you know the medical issues and everything else that Andre was going through, and the fact that he went out there and and performed is in itself amazing. Definitely. But then we get to to 84, which is kind of like the Starcade that, like the forgotten Starcade in a way, because there's a bunch of like solid matches, but there's nothing really memorable. You know, I, I think one of the problems, I don't know if I've talked to you about this before, but I think Starcade 84 is weird because of the number of heels you have working as baby faces on that show. That it, that is kind of it just feels weird when you watch it. I mean, it may have made more sense in context at the time. But you know, when you have a show where Assassin 1 Judy Hamilton and Ole Anderson are both baby faces. <laughs> yeah. And you and you can maybe throw in Dick Slater. Yeah. That it's just kind of weird. 84 was, that whole year was a weird year for Mid-Atlantic. Well, yeah, I was going to say, uh, that's, it's always like, I mean, you know, if it's famously called the year of transition, you know, with all those YouTube clips. But, yeah. And the weird, you know, the booking changes, and then all of a sudden Dusty's crew comes in, but you still got all these holdovers from the, like the Dory Funk era. And it it just it comes to from they had been hot so long for years that territory had just been so hot so much on fire. Eventually, it had to burn out, and then you got to restart. You got to rebuild, and I think Starcade '83 is. The mountaintop, because really, 
where do you go from that big of an event to that hot of not one program, but you had the world title program, the tag title program, you had the TV title program. Now you're starting with uh, Wahoo, and you know that was the start of a little program with Wahoo and Slater and Orton. So I mean, you had so many matches. And so much, it had to fall off just because I don't care how creative the bookers were and how great the talent is. Man, we're to a point of how much further, how much higher can we go? And they had to rebuild and it took a, it took over a year. Cause I mean, yes, it started getting better towards the end of 84, but I mean, you're, Deep into 85 before it really catches fire again. And then look, and then it stays hot for three years. Yeah. See, I was fortunate that I didn't start watching Crockett until like right around the bash in 85 and forward. You know, like I jumped on at like almost the perfect time to start watching Crockett. Yeah. You, you got right in the dusty era. And which was a great time. But 84 Starcade, it is, it's, it's strange. Billy Graham coming back as a kung fu fighter to fight Wahoo. You know, even as a kid, I'm, I'm 10 years old at that time thinking, I don't think he really knows kung fu or karate. (laughs) I I mean, just, and, Rocky Cranoodle teaming with Ole against the Russians. Here's a guy that's, you know, Keith Larson's Rocky Cranoodle that's never won a match on TV. Or I don't think I'd ever seen him win a match in the arena. Now here he is um, in a world tag title match. That, that. You know, it's funny. I said this yesterday on Twitter. I don't know if you saw it. But as I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, so this is this is Thanksgiving 1984, and you're thinking, who could they have gotten to be Ole's partner that would have worked since Cronodo was injured? And I was like, when did Slaughter leave the WWF? And I look it up, and he's there through the end of the year, but by January, he's left. And I'm like... Do you know how amazing it probably would have been if Sarge would have jumped a month earlier and shown up and teamed with Ole to reunite with Don Cronodal against the Russians at Starcade, what that would have been like? There was a lot of us that thought that's who it was going to be. It would it made perfect sense. Cronodal, Slaughter, USA, Russia, it's time for the Sarge to come home. And but they, they, and nothing against against Rocky Cornoodle because you know he he's a great hand himself, but he had never been presented in that type of position. There there could have been Gene Anderson is there. Yes, Gene has not wrestled in a few years. Well, no, he he was still wrestling in '83 some, so he hadn't wrestled in a year maybe. 
But why not the Andersons against the Russians? You know, why not? I mean, somebody else should have been in that spot. Well, I mean, realistically, Manny is Dusty's partner in the World Tag Team Champions. You know, I mean, Manny versus Bart, you know, is a fine enough match, you know, for the Brass Nux titles or whatever. But, you know, putting Manny in that spot makes sense. You know, yeah. putting putting Slater in that match makes sense. Yeah, or just bringing in some random, you know, I mean, heck, in a worst case scenario, you know, it's like, you know, bring in Lars. You know, hell, you could have, I mean. I wasn't going to work out with the heat Lars and Crockett had. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, and it's, it's, it's. But Gene, Gene is there. Gene works in the office. And, and they did, and Gene would not have had to did a lot. They just hit the ring, go right at the Russians because they're dirty, nasty heels herself, get a little bit on the Russians. And then, you know, let the Russians stop Ole, get a little bit on him, a hot tag to Gene, and then do some kind of screw job finish. They could have did it in six, seven minutes. And I, I think that Anderson name, the Anderson brothers, that name meant so much in Charlotte territory that, okay, here you have the plan that the Russians are the team. They're beating everybody. Okay, what greater team could you find for them to beat other than the Andersons in that territory? There's no other team with a bigger name and longer history. So, yeah, it's just strange. Yeah, like I said, and you've got, you know, you got Jody Hamilton having turned face on Paul Jones, and he's in a tag match against the Zambouis, and then, you know, he's Jimmy Valiant second for the hair match, and you're just like, all the people to you know, it's like, it's like would you, it's like would you really trust the assassin to be your partner? You know, you know what I mean? It just it just feels weird. Yeah. And what I'm trying to think of the card of Starcade '84. I've not okay, watched that one in years. Okay, it's it's Denny Brown versus Mike Davis. And that's when. Downtown Denny Brown wins the junior heavyweight title. Get Brian Adias and Mr. Ito. Jesse Barr and Mike Graham for the Florida title. Assassin 1 and Buzz Tyler versus the Zambouis. Manny versus Bart. Paul Jones and Jimmy Valiant in a tuxedo street fight. Ron Bass and Dick Slater. The Russians in the match we talked about. Tully and Steamboat. Wahoo and Billy Graham. And then Flair and Dusty. It's another one yeah. of those. It's another one of those shows where, if you shuffle the card a little, you at least on paper have a better show. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, you know, the undercard is the undercard, and it doesn't have a lot of the same. And again, there, you know, you've got your Florida offer matches, just yeah. like on Starcade '83, and even in '85 and '86, have it. There's always. You know, feuds from Florida that they're they're using to fill out the card, and you know Gordon's there. You know, the first two shows it's Gordon and Bob Cottle doing the announcing. So you know, so there's a definite 
Florida flavor, and I'm sure that's because those they were probably closed-circuited throughout Florida, so they want, you know, if nothing else, yeah. some of our guys are on the show, Dusty's on the show, and Gordon's the announcer, so, we'll, you know, we want our Gordon's Holy Wrestling. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny that, you know, that maybe there's not more of a Georgia flavor to it. I mean, always on the card. You know, you you know, I'm not sure who's exactly in Georgia at this point, but you know, you could have brought in Ronnie Garvin to do something, just yeah. to fill, you know, to, to defend the national title, or you know, Jake or whoever has the national belt at the time. You know, I don't know if the Road Warriors are still in Georgia or if they're if they've moved to AWA yet, they, but they by that point. Yeah, so I mean, there's definitely people they could have put on the card. So it's just, it's kind of the card. It's like now, it's like it has the novelty of seeing Tully wrestle Steamboat, which, yeah. it's unfortunately is kind of disappointing, only because of how good Tully and Steamboat are, and maybe because they built a lot of the match around you know Steamboat being injured, so that played into the story. But, you know, I mean, it's it's fine. It's not horrible. It's just, again, you know, if you say on paper, Ricky Steamboat's wrestling Tully Blanchard, that's like your quintessential babyface and your quintessential heel. So, yeah. you know, you, you'd think it'd be like a super match, and it's, and it's just fine, unfortunately. And by all reports, they had been going time limit draws in Greensboro for months building to this and and had had unbelievable matches and I believe here also that Steamboat sees the writing on the wall and knows he's on the way out um, because Starcade was the night for the baby faces to prevail. 83, Young Blood and Steamboat, Flair, Valiant, Piper. You know, it was their night. It was the blow off to get even to, to the good guy wins. And that didn't happen with Tully and Steamboat. And I think Ricky realized I'm not long for this territory. But on the plus side, Starcade '85 is so much better. And admittedly, this yeah. is my first. It's my first Starcade, and you know, I guess the the most common complaint about Starcade '85 is just how bloody it is. But you know, if you look at all the Starcades, they're kind of like that in a way. But it's just you know when this when when you have juice, I think in. Maybe all but one or two of the matches out of 12, <laughs> you know, and maybe, you know, I don't know how you've, how you've heard people talk about it over the years, but what did the guys think in hindsight about having it in two places? What, did, did it matter to them at all? No, they, they actually liked that because, <clears throat> um, 
especially the guys that were in Greensboro. Because, <laughs> you know, Greensboro to Charlotte is such a short, short trip. They got to spend time with their family that day. You know, they, they got to actually have Thanksgiving with their families. So they liked that. Um, the guys that went to Atlanta didn't get to spend as much time. Um, but it also being in two places, it opened it up for more people to be on the card. Um, and better payoffs, you know, I mean, cause now you're going to have, you're going to have prelim matches that guys are going to get a good payoff for. And, um, and, and I think too, it was cool that they were the first part of a, you know, a two night event or a two place event one night. I mean, technology had finally got there to where they could do that. And my thing of looking back, uh, now is, you know, what if one of the satellites would have went down or something and you couldn't have shown Greensboro or Atlanta, you were only getting the one feed. What would they have done then? And and that had to be a thought process that they had to go through to make sure that it did not happen. It's amazing. It's amazing to think in like 30 years of like wrestling pay-per-views that like we can probably count on one hand the number of weird snafus that have happened. Yeah. You know, the power going out the one time at in your house, the one time Halloween Havoc ran over so you didn't get to finish in the main. But, you know, that's those are like the two main ones, I think, you know, that in all these years we didn't have the satellite. I mean, we may have had like glitches here and there, but for the most part, it's amazing that we didn't yeah have a show get knocked off the air or. Well, I guess there's another one. I guess for the first ECW show that, like, the generator blew right after the pay-per-view. So, you yeah. know, that's another near miss. But on the whole, it's it's remarkable that how good a luck they've had. You know, they have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, even the Super Bowl had the power go out for a half an hour or something, whatever it was that one year. <laughs> yeah, it's that had to be a. For the production people and office people, that had to be a nerve-wracking day of, oh, everything has to go perfect. I mean, it has to. Because if it don't, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? Yeah, and I think it's definitely a better card, too. Admittedly, and there's more, like you said, Crockett is starting to catch fire, and they've imported a lot more talent. So... It's uh, Kershaw Khrushchev beat Sam Houston to win the Mid-Atlantic title, which had been vacant. Uh, Manny beat Abdullah in a Mexican hat or a Mexican death match, which was a sombrero on a pole match, which always seemed like not really fair booking to ask Abdullah to climb a pole <laughs> to win a match. You know what I mean? Hey, hey, and here's the thing, too. <coughs> After that match, Everybody else should have thrown their blade away other than the uh uh I quit match because you're not topping that Manny and Butcher out there bleeding the way they were bleeding. And that's the second match. 
So then you get uh, Ron Bass leading back Bart in a bull rope match, and then he gets five minutes with J.J. Oh, three of them are bleeding. Yeah. Uh, Billy Graham and Barbarian have an arm wrestling match, and then a pretty brief match that Superstar wins by DQ. Yeah. Uh, then Buddy and Terry Taylor, Budro wins the national belt when J.J. interferes, which, which is always – to me, it's a great visual on that finish when Terry Taylor's going for the superplex and J.J. cuts his leg out and then Buddy falls on top of him. It, it, to me, yeah. it's a great-looking great finish. Yeah. Uh, then uh, the Andersons beat Wahoo and Billy Jack to theoretically, I guess, unify the two national – well, the national – Tag team belt and the U.S. tag team belt, which is what it was in Florida. So there's but a they didn't. Didn't I mean it was the U.S. champions against the national champions, but they didn't unify the belts. Oh, see, I always thought they did. No, no, they go no. back to Florida with their belts, and then after the Andersons have to forfeit the belts from Ole's injury, they have a tournament, and they change the name from national to U.S. Okay. In the Crockett territory. Uh, let's see. So then, then you got the I Quit match. Then uh, Jimmy Valiant and Miss Lynn Lively, for people who don't know, is Ron Garvin in drag, beat the Midnight Express uh, in an Atlanta street fight, which I was admonished for recently because I called that a tuxedo match when – only the Midnight Express were the ones wearing the tuxedos, but somebody wanted to be nitpicky about it. <laughs> um, then the Rock and Roll win the tag team belts back from the Russians in a cage, and then Dusty and Flair, and then you've got the maybe the most famous example of the Dusty finish where Dusty wins, but he had Earlier, Flair would have been disqualified for throwing him over the top rope, but there had already been a rough bump. You know, the the finish we all know and unfortunately came to know too well. And they go off the air with him as the world champion. Which So if you, you went to Starcade 85 and if you were in Greensboro or Atlanta or the dozens of plays showing it on closed circuit. You left thinking Dusty was the world champion to find out that weekend that he was not. And you know, it's, that's not a good idea because I think that, I think we also remember Vern Gagne doing that. And when you can remember yeah. something that Vern Gagne did that you replicate, that's not good. Yeah, it doesn't really help to send them home happy when they find out the next week that they that you what you saw wasn't true. Yeah, they found out on TBS Saturday night. But I think on this show, there's easily three or four really good matches. I mean, I think it's probably arguable that the I Quit match is the best match in Starcade history. I think that's... Not outrageous to say. Yeah. Certainly the most famous match in Starcade, maybe of the Crockett, certainly of the Crockett era. When, you know, 
years later, people are still chanting, I quit at Tully Blanchard. <laughs> even even as, as Baby Doll pointed out on Twitter the other day, he did not say, I quit. Which is why it's even even funnier that people are still chanted at him. And yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so he was the first one with the yes. <laughs> True. Uh, yeah, and we're what are we? We're we're almost forty years later. People are still yelling, "I quit it totally" when they see him. And it's funny people don't say that to Terry Funk. Terry Funk had a famous I quit match, but uh, he's also Terry Funk. Yeah, and, and I think it's because Tully went on TV for so long saying, I never said I quit. You know, well, as, uh, you, as, as you know, as I'm sure you all know, know all too well, the easiest way to get fans to chant something at you is for you to tell them to not chant it at you. <laughs> you just, you don't. You don't re- you don't expect to be getting it forty years later, <laughs> but that that also tells you how hot that program was, and people still remember it. And man, that was a hot time. And yeah, eighty five. That, that was that was the first arcade that um, that I was able to see. Pretty fast. Somebody that we knew recorded it off a satellite and got me a copy of it like within a week or something. And then um, I've got the commercial tape still too that they put out. Uh, And then the next year, is when they started doing the uh, closed circuit in Johnson City. So, 86, 87, I saw, as they happened, 85, I saw pretty quickly. Um, 83, 84, it was years before I saw them in full. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, it's like you would occasionally see, like, the flare match would maybe get replayed. But other than that, I mean, for the long time, the only things I had ever seen from Starcade, the first two Starcades were in that George Thurgood music video. Yeah. On the PWI tape. And didn't they, didn't they? Put out a best of Starcade, like eighty three to eighty eight or eighty seven. I think so. I mean, I know there was. I know eventually the WF put out like a Starcade three disc set that had a bunch of stuff from the early Star, like matches from the early Starcade on it. Yeah. Rocket put out a two VHS set that had like the first four years best of Starcade, or maybe just somebody made that and I got a copy of it. I, I don't know. I mean, that's the problem at Blur. I mean, you know, by the mid nineties, I had copies just because I had started tape trading, so I had, you yeah. know, I had seen everything. But yeah, what was 
real and what wasn't, other than the fact that, you know, that I had the Star, you know, I had the Pink Box Starcade, as I think, I guess it's known now, like that version that, you know, I ordered from the After Magazines. Yeah. In 86, it's funny that, like, I watched that the other day, and there's some stuff I just didn't even remember happening. I guess just because it's, you know, 85 is so ingrained and I had a tape that 86 was just, 86 and 87, you go, other than, like, the the key matches you remember, but the rest, like, do you know what the opening match was on Starcade 86, if you remember this? It was a tag match. And I'm... Nelson Royal was in it? Yes. Was it Nelson and Sam? No. It's Nelson, Nelson and Tim Horner. Tim Horner versus the Kernodles. Yeah. So there you have, yeah, so you have Keith Larson back to being in the opening match, but that's where, you know, that's where Don is at this point. It's I don't. I was almost surprised that, to see that Don Cronoda was still there in '86. And <laughs> the way he had been, the, yeah, the way he had been phased out once Dusty took over. In the fall of '86, they run Johnson City. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and for some reason, everybody's late getting there because they're doing the TBS taping that morning. Um, I don't know if it was weather. I, I don't know what the deal was. But the opening match was Keith Larson and Tim Horner. The second match was Don Cranoodle and the agent for the town who had not had a wrestling match in some time, Johnny Weaver. Do you want to guess what the third match was? I'm guessing it was a tag match. (laughs) A match (laughs) with those four men. And then finally, the rest of the crew was there. Which is funny because in, like, the really old days of the territories, that may have been, like, a seashow a spot card, the entire card. Yeah. Two singles and a tag with the four guys in the tag. Yeah. But, you know, by 1986, with the big houses they're drawn and the big cards, the main event that day was Midnight Against Road Warriors, and... It was Animal and Ellering. Uh, Hawk did not work because uh, he was, still had the broken ankle. But the uh, Johnny Weaver takes a drop toe hold in the tag match and falls and takes the face bump, but busts his nose and mouth on the mat. Because <laughs> as soon as he comes up, blood is pouring out of his nose. And people in the crowd 
were highly upset that they had poor old Johnny out there in two matches and we're 45 minutes into this wrestling event and we've not seen one advertised match yet. So how they got the Cronodals, Tim lives in Morristown, so I guess he drove. He wasn't needed for TV that day. Weaver's the agent for the town, so he's there. I guess early that morning they called the Cronodals and told them to get to Johnson City from uh, Burlington, North Carolina, where they live, which is about a three-hour trip, and just put the time in until we get there. I need to ask Cornette about why they were so late that day to see if he remembers. Probably, maybe it was something in the book about it. Got to look later. So that was your opening match at Starcade 86. Match two, which, having watched it, was not, I wouldn't say surprisingly good because of who was in it, but. So match two is Brad Armstrong and Jimmy Garvin wrestling to a 15-minute draw. And it's the kind of thing where you think, again, you know, it's Starcade, but still, why are Jimmy Garvin and Brad Armstrong in the second match on a card? And and they'd had some TV time with that deal with uh... – they had started, and then they bring Bullet in, and him and Dundee get involved in it. So they had some, they had a little bit of a issue there. And it's a really weird match too, because Garvin's controlling it almost the entire time, and even when you get to the last minute, Brad really hasn't even started making a comeback yet. Like it ends with like. Jimmy doing some sort of failed top rope move and then the bell rings and then Brad sort of gets a house of fire a little and then cleans house. And you're like, it's a very, it's a very oddly laid out match for being a draw. Cause you would expect, you know, yeah. Yeah. It could be that it came from uh, match. Here's a, uh, what I would call a war special for Crockett. Hector Guerrero and Baron Von Raschke, who in 1986, as a babyface, is introduced from East Germany, beat Shaska Watley and the Barbarian. It's like, okay, match four. This is this is actually yeah. Go ahead. That match makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> I did not remember that the Baron had been a babyface after he left Paul Jones's army. Yeah, not yeah for a little bit because uh, he helps put Paul in the cage uh, or Manny in the cage when they Paul and Valiant have the eighty seven Starcade match yeah or eighty six Starcade yeah and well at least Hector gets to wrestle as himself and not as Lasertron so yeah I'm sure he's happy about that match four is actually a really good match that I did not even remember took place. For the United States Tag Team Championship, it's the Russians, Ivan and Crusher, versus the Kansas Jayhawks, Bobby Jaggers and Dutch Mantel. And this is like a really good 10-minute sprint with them doing just everything, and it's a really solid match. 
They were they were in a house show program at the time and were having really good matches. I saw one, and I've got one from the Omni in Atlanta on tape somewhere that's really good. The funniest thing I did not remember was that the Kansas Jayhawks had red, white, and blue leather chaps, which I did not remember them wearing. That's the kind of thing that, like, I may have to send an email. May I send an email to Dutch's podcast to ask if he still has those? I don't, I don't just, remember that. No, it's just like don't. It's just like you never see. You recall like Dutch ever having anything flashier than this, like the poncho that he wore. Yeah. You know, match five is an Indian threat match where Wahoo beats Rick Rude, which. Uh, I mean, we, there hasn't been a, there hasn't been a lot of juice on this show yet, but both the, both guys juice, and I would not be surprised. If these are both hard way hard way shots from the strap because yeah, they, they were I mean, they were laying it in hard on each other's foreheads in this. Yeah. Then and another surprisingly good match. I probably shouldn't say that, but for the Central States title, Sam Houston beats. Superstar Bill Dundee by DQ. And you want to talk about Dundee, you know, not wanting to take stuff from Mr. Sato. He beat the holy hell out of Sam Houston in this match. I mean, he was, he was a, he was amazingly stiff. I mean, not, I guess not amazing because it's Dundee, but it was stiffer than I would have expected, I guess, for being, you know, like a middle of the card match for the Central States title. There's a lot of political stuff going on around Kansas City and Bill and Dusty and Crockett and Sam at this point, which leads to Bill going to Florida in early 87, but still under Dusty and Crockett control, and, and it just carried over there too, which made Dundee just say, forget it, I'm going home. What's funny is I was looking at the matches around the around the horn this time because I was I was mainly looking up to see how much longer the Jayhawks were there before Dutch went to Continental, and Dutch and Dundee have a match against each other in the Omni. Oh wow! How weird is that? Yeah, and it was like the opening match on the show. But how funny would it be to be like in the Omni and like the first match you see is this like Memphis special? Yeah. So and, get, and has and has the, the chance to be in the best match of the night. Yeah. <clears throat> then we get the hair versus hair match. Jimmy Valiant with Big Mama. Versus Paul Jones and Manny, where Mia Manny gets put in Betty Lou and hung above the. Room. It's it's a, it's funny. There's like four or five guys trying to get Manny into the cage, <clears throat> and then Wahoo shows up and chops him once, and Manny takes the bump back into the cage, and they lock the door. Yeah, it's like yes, he's going to sell for Wahoo if not nobody else. The, the okay that match. The hair match, the hair angle, the Paul Jones, Jimmy Valiant feud. Everybody wants to badmouth it. Everybody wants to, oh, it went on forever. 
it did. I mean, it went. It was the better part of four years. But here's what people forget, and we just covered the Jimmy Valiant Midnight Express feud in '85. There is a Valiant Tully feud in '86. Um. They break Valiant off and use him because he was such a hot commodity. And people want to say, oh, he was terrible. Oh, and I've covered this on other podcasts. Box office receipts tell you different. If you're looking for a work rate match from Jimmy Valiant, forget it. If you're looking to be entertained and what draws money and personal issues, he's the man to do the job. Now, they were happy on top. And, and, and that 84, that boogeyman jam, that run, it is what's selling tickets in the Carolina territory because nothing else is. So Paul Jones and Jimmy Valiant kept business running as usual and people making a living. For a time period that the territory was way down. And they drew some big houses on their matches alone. And they kind of felt that they were slided in payoffs and kind of felt they were, you know, when the dusty gets in and it gets hot again, you know, they're now kind of pushed down um not an ego thing just it's just that hey an appreciation thing we could have been appreciated a little bit better so when they get to this hair match deal and they want to cut valiant's hair he agrees for a price So now they know that they have to get Paul Jones's hair to, be, you know, to make the people happy. They have to get Paul Jones to agree to get his head shaved too. So Paul gives a price because him and Valiant are speaking. Most of the time, the boys did not go, hey, what'd you get? Or, you know, how much? No, they are. Because <laughs> they've been in this program together the whole run. Paul asked for more money than Valiant. And he gets it. But he splits the difference with Jimmy. I always thought that's a stand-up kind of guy right there. Because they were in this thing together for the long run, and they made sure that they got paid the same. <clears throat> well, that's reminiscent. Most other, <clears throat> other people would not do that. They would only care about themselves. Well, that seems reminiscent of how we hear that baby faces used to give part of their gimmick money to the heels because they wouldn't be as popular without the heels making them popular. Right. 
But the interesting thing about that hair match, in hindsight, is after he wins, that Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez come down and lay him out. Because it's not that much longer after Starcade when they win the tag team belts and sort of, and again, then, then we sort of get a new incarnation of Paul Jones managing, managing those two, you know, he's back to wearing weird tuxes and not his, his military fatigues anymore. And and he, 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 part of Paul's agreement to get his head shaved was he never had, he never had to be on TV bald. So Rude and Manny made sure they knocked his hat off every night, <laughs> somehow, <laughs> including the day they win the tag titles, which was like a week after Starcade. <laughs> in the celebration, they knock his hat off in the ring on TBS. There's Paul Ballhead. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, like I said, as somebody who started watching, you know, in the mid '80s. I did not have like I did not hold Paul Jones in like the greatest esteem at, as a manager, partially because well he's there with Cornette and Dylan, so that's kind of unfair. Yeah. And you know, and he really didn't work that often. And he was a guy who was smart enough to kind of work more as a manager than a guy who had been you know, I got a top of the card worker 10 years ago. But when I, when I watched all of that South Atlantic, North Atlantic stuff that crispy posted, and then Paul Jones is a baby face again. I was amazed at like how good he was as a character. And then the couple times he was in the ring and that's five years after this, I was like, I was very impressed with, you know, because he's like 50 at that point, probably. And he's having really good matches with Robert Fuller, you know, over that title. And you're like, I would have never guessed that the sort of washed up, quote unquote, Paul Jones that I I saw, you know, in like 1985 and 1986, you know, had that in him five years later. And I think it's that. The what I was just talking about, they didn't feel appreciated. Um, they were making a good living. They were happy uh, with what they were making, but they, it was just that, hey, we're not appreciated for what we did here to keep this thing rolling to be rebuilt. And, and, you know, and if you're not happy in the slightest way at something, it may affect your performance and everything. And I think that kind of did with Paul. But then he gets back with Rude and Manny, and, you know, they're in that big run, the title. So now he's kind of, like you say, he's reinvented himself, and he's back to – kind of being the old Paul Jones a little bit. But, you know, it's, what, a year later that Valiant's gone from Crockett? Uh, well, year and a half. Early 88, when all the changes start, and those guys are gone. So, but, yeah, Paul, I, you know, I saw 
Paul Jones, the wrestler, is a heel and a baby face. And I saw Paul Jones in his early managing days with the Assassins and and, and Dory Funk. And he managed Tully. People forget that uh, for a short time. The ones that I did not know about until only a couple of years ago was like his brief tenure managing Hollywood John Tatum before John Tatum went back to Dallas and debuted on TV with Missy Hyatt. Oh, now that I don't even remember. Yeah, he was he was briefly. This is like early, this is like early '85 or like even like February March. It's like I was like watching all this stuff. I'm like, I never knew John Tatum was here, and it's John Tatum by himself, and he's it's kind of mostly with, working in the opening match. Yeah, but like yeah. he's like, but like Paul James is like recruiting him and like maybe manages him for like a week or two, and then yeah, he's I don't go- remember that at all. And then he's gone, and I think by, like, maybe, like, May or June, he's back in Dallas, and then he's there, I think, by himself for, like, maybe a week or two, and then all of a sudden he's got Missy, and then, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. But you're like, I had no, I mean, it's kind of like the first time in, like, the early 80s when I saw, like, brown-haired Buddy and Crockett. I'm like, what the? <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, not only did you never know that they worked there at that time, but to like to look, I guess they'd probably be like, if you could go back and find like early 70s stuff from like pre-Austin Idol, Austin Idol. Yeah. You know, where he apparently looked completely different to the point where, you know, Ron said he didn't recognize him when he met him as Austin Idol. Yeah. You know, it's like, or, you know, power lifter Ric Flair. You yeah. know, like, you you have to strain your eyes and go, okay, I see that's who it is. But yeah, there's that's... just some there's just some guys you're like, I'd never, or you know, guys, not when they're not under a mask, or like some of the, like, the Japanese, you know, we're talking about the Japanese guys, you know, somebody posted, like, an er, like a early 80s Central States Recently, and it has pre-Kabuki Kabuki on it. I, I just watched that the other night. My gosh, that was so strange. And I mean, I've seen some of it before, but you're just like, like your brain, it takes your brain a couple of minutes to figure it out. Yeah. So, back to Starcade. Next, another underrated match, I think, in hindsight, is the Louisville Street Fight between Big Bubba and Ronnie Garvin. And again, ah, that was great. Again, I mean, I think if I tell you that, you know, Ronnie Garvin and somebody just beat the crap out of each other for 10 minutes, um, you A, would not be surprised, and B, would probably expect it to be pretty good. But, yeah, they were, you know, and again, you know, this is, I mean, Bubbles have only been Bubba for, like, what, six months, eight months at this point? You know, Maybe. he's just... He, he, Six months, yeah. But yeah, that's that's a that's I uh <coughs> I sent Jim an email the other day and I was like, you know, you guys haven't done a watch along recently. And I know everybody always asks you about the scaffold match at Starcade, but I'm like, I watched this match again and it's really good. It's like maybe maybe he's like you guys should talk about 
the the street fight because it's like you're right there, you know, and it's like pretty darn stiff in in quality. And then we get Tully and Dusty in an I Quit match for the TV title, which the only goes their first blood, yeah, for the TV title. It's uh, and it only goes seven minutes. I mean, it's pretty darn short. It's a lot of. I guess really first blood matches really can't go that long because how long can you really yeah. keep that suspense going? And of course there's a screw job where Tully bleeds first, but there's a rough bump and then they wipe the blood off and then he busts Dusty open. It's funny. He busts Dusty open with a roll of coins, a match after Bubba did the same thing to Gar- or Garvin. Bubba did the same thing to Garvin. And I'm like, that seems like the kind of thing that you would make sure doesn't happen two matches in a row. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? That's like, that should only be a once on the card spot. But then again, if they're, I don't know, was this, 86 is in, that might it also was in be, two places. Yeah, so that may be the thing where they didn't know what they were going to do. One's in Atlanta, one's in, Charlotte or uh, Greensboro. Yeah. So then we get the Road Warriors uh, being the Midnight Express in the scaffold match. We all know what happens, and it's like, I guess there can be good scaffold matches, but not usually. And this one, I guess, is fine for what it is, especially considering, you know, one of the Road Warriors can't really walk very well at this point. Yeah. So that is what it is. Then another really good match. I think. I think. We're coming to the conclusion that Starcade is probably Starcade Six is probably a lot better than maybe it's remembered for. The Rock and Roll Express and the Andersons in a cage match where the Rock and Roll Express win the tag belts back. That's another uh, really that's uh, a really good solid finish. match. Yeah. Oh. And that's only last Starcade, isn't it? Um. I'd have to look. I want to say, unless he's a wrestler, because I'm sure he managed on, you know, years later for WCW on some of them. Yeah, I was trying to think of like if they had stuck him in the beginning, or like an opening match. But no, yeah. So that's yeah. So that's Oli's last Crockett era Starcade. Yeah, you wouldn't count to being the voice of the Black Scorpion or uh, whomever. Yeah, and then yeah, and then Flair and Garvin, and as we said, arguably Flair's best Starcade match of the Crockett era. And again, eighty-six was for Nikita. Oh, yeah, okay, Flair and Nikita. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I stupidly flipped ahead to eighty-seven. I was looking at <laughs> yeah, so Flair and Nikita, and again, that's a match that. You know, came together with a month, you know, after yeah. Magnum's accident. And that's another thing. You look at this card and you wonder how many of these matches would have been different. You know, that probably would have been Flair and Magnum. So then, you know, Nikita still. Yeah, he, but there's also a heavy rumor that it was going to be Flair Garvin and Magnum, Nikita, and I quit. Um, 
So I, I kind of believe that because they had to blow the, <clears throat> they had to blow the Magnum Nikita thing off. And that was, would have been Magnum winning, you know, that would become his match. The I quit match would became his. Yeah. So I, I kind of believe it was going to be Garvin, Flair, Magnum, Nikita. And then presumably there, and then they know sometime after Starcade, Luger will be coming in. Yeah. For who, you know, whoever's going to feud with, whoever, whichever babyface is going to feud with Luger. But yeah, yeah, 80s, yeah but 86 has some really good stuff on it. Yeah. Maybe like maybe like just you know like just a notch below eighty five, and then eighty seven eighty seven. I have a hard time watching being a uh, being a, a UWF guy because it's just like it's so depressing. You know the whole way that they booked the UWF and then kind of how it fizzled out at the end, especially at Starcade. If there was ever a night, a one-night event that destroyed so much, this is it. You kill Greensboro with Starcade 87 because that was Starcade. That was the home. So they move it to Chicago. So you kill Greensboro, your cash cow in the Carolinas. You do the swerve finish on the Road Warrior match. So now you have killed Chicago. <laughs> and you completely kill off the UWF in any hopes of ever having some kind of traction in that territory. There, there were a lot of bad decisions around around this night, and yet there's still some good matches. Yes. So it's like <coughs> so. We start with, which is another very odd on paper match. So we've got Eddie Gilbert, Rick Steiner, and Larry Zbysko with Baby Doll. Versus Jimmy Garver and Michael Hayes and Sting. Now I have to point out that Sting, Michael Hayes, and Jimmy Garvin are the baby faces. Because, you know, if you didn't if if you didn't have Larry Zabisco in there, you would not know which team was which on paper. <laughs> because and it's, it's, it's your it's your hodgepodge of the watch and burn territory. And you just had Sting, you know, coming from Mid South and being partners with Gilbert and Steiner, and you know until he turned babyface. So it's like, and babyface Freebirds, and it's a time of a draw, so it doesn't really accomplish anything. Yeah. So then you get Doc and Barry Windham for the UWF title, which has a very strange finish where. 
you have guys getting low blowed in the match, and then Doc gets low blowed first, but Barry lets him recover, and then Barry gets a low blow, but Doc immediately pins him, so it kind of turns him heel, and you're like, huh? Yeah. It's a weird. It's weird booking. Doesn't do either of them any favors. Then when we talked about guys like why matches were someplace on the card. Match three, for almost no reason at all, is another scaffold match between the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express. Like, why? It's not. It's not like it's a tradition because we've only done it once before. Well, I can't. It- they're trying to give something different. They're trying to sell the fact that, you know, Cornette was hurt in it the year earlier. Who's going to get hurt this year? Um, yeah. And, and I think maybe they felt they had did everything they could do with Rock and Roll Midnight. But, you know, it's just, it's just kind of pointless. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, it's like a lot of stuff in this era of Crockett, it's a lot of stuff being recycled. Yeah. You know, whether it's gimmicks or bad finishes or it is kind of like it again, you know, as you know, like, you know, when you book when you book for so long, you either have to come up with new ideas or you recycle the old ideas, but you know, you need a time before you can recycle the ideas again. Yeah. And especially for gimmick matches, especially one with potential for injury like a scaffold match. Anyway. Yeah. So then there's the TV title unification match between Nikita and Terry Taylor, which not surprisingly ends Bailey for Terry Taylor. And again, you know, it's, you know, Terry Taylor and Eddie Gilbert, the two guys who Dusty and Flair don't like from the UWF, so get rid of them. And I mean, I remember that match not being horrible, but you know, and and, and I and I Terry say that he didn't give it a hundred percent because he had been warned before he went to the ring that Nikita was going to take his head off. And he looks back at it now thinking, no, he was true professional. I didn't have to worry about that, but it was put in my ear. <laughs> Probably by somebody extremely paranoid named Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. <laughs> That's what I've always believed. Yeah, so then we get the horse run versus the Road Warriors, where the Road Warriors get screwed in Chicago for really no good reason other than, you know, it's what we do. Dusty beats Luger in the cage to win the United States title. You know, this has been the battle of the, battle of the sleeper holds with the Weaver Lock and you know, the angle building up to this match was a lot more interesting than the match itself. Yes. Johnny Weaver, Hero, Matsuda, Luger. And then and then it's kind of a dumb finish where there's a ref bump. JJ throws the chair in. 
Luger goes to bend down to pick up the chair and then Dusty DDT'd him on it. Yeah. Okay. And then Flair and Garvin, which, as we said before, is a really good match. You know, the whole whether it was the wrong time for Garvin to be champion, why didn't Garvin defend this belt? It was just so Flair could win it back on Stark. You know, all of those things are true. But this and is it, still... And, and here's the thing. Ronnie Garvin is not to blame for any of that. No, no, it's the thing. And these guys still had a great match. Yeah. Getting the hell out of each other. But, but still it's, want to knock Garvin as the world champion. He did what he could do and what he was told. So anybody that wants to take that negativity towards Ronnie, they need to point it where it needs to go. And that would be Jim Crockett Jr. and Dusty Rhodes. I was going to say, I can't imagine it was Ron Garvin said, hey, let me take 43 days off as world champion and not defend my belt. <laughs> if nothing else, for the payoffs that, that he's losing, theoretically, is not being world champion for two months, drawing house shows. Yeah. And then, and, and, and probably, he, he, what if he had drawn his champion? Then what happens? Um, he did get to go to Don Owen's territory. And defend. And uh, he said that was the only title defenses he had and the only ones where he was paid as the world champion was for Don Owens. <coughs> but, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. You have to think some things you cannot fault the guy involved when he's just doing what he's told. And I and I think if Garvin would have gotten the title in eighty five or eighty six and would have got even a ninety to a hundred and twenty day run with it, he would be remembered completely different than now. And I'm sure if Mike were here to say this, that if they would have let Ron Garvin defend his belt one night in Baltimore, you know how over he would have been in Baltimore probably that night? Yeah. You know, put him in the ring with like Arn against like Arn and Tully. Yeah. Or here, here in East Tennessee. Or in, oh, yeah. or in the Omni. Where he was super over. You know, I saw him and Flair going hour in 86. And, I mean, it was unreal. And the match that they had on TBS, I mean, were great. If he would have got the belt during that run for a short time, it would have been a completely different view of Ronnie Garvin now. But Dusty wanted to kill him off, and he did. Yeah, this thing. And then by the time we get to Starcade 88, it is now owned by Turner, so we'll we'll let that be. And Other than and on Thanksgiving anymore. That's true. So, yeah, so this was the last... 
Yeah, 87, this is the night, Starcade 87 is when, you know, Vince pulled his power play and it's like something like six or seven cable companies in the country were the only ones that showed Starcade. Everyone else showed the first Survivor Series. But that's Thanksgiving in the past. Why don't you tell us, Bo, about Thanksgiving in the near future? Uh, well, you know, growing up, being a super fan and knowing that Thanksgiving night was and Thanksgiving week weekend is a it's the biggest weekend of wrestling historically until you get into now WrestleMania's, you know, the modern era. It was the big week of the year. So we started running our promotion 31 years ago. And from day one, I wanted Thanksgiving night wrestling. And the first year, 1991, we ran the Saturday of Thanksgiving. I couldn't sell the people involved with Ken Bowles and my parents, we were all running the promotion. And my mom was a management for Walmart, and she didn't want to be at wrestling late on Thanksgiving night and have to be at Walmart at 6 o'clock in the morning for Black Friday sales. <laughs> and I totally get that now. But I wanted that Thanksgiving night. But we've been doing a Thanksgiving event now for 31 years. and. I took Thanksgiving wrestling to East Kentucky, and we did five years over there in Hazard. Very successful. Thanksgiving's always been a big thing for me, but from the earliest one that we did, my mom had the idea of let's collect toys for kids that need it. And we used the USMC's Toys for Tots uh, at the beginning. We used um, the John Berry, which is a big thing here in East Tennessee, the John Berry, John Berry Memorial Toy Drive. We've used them. We've tried to collect toys and food now for three decades. And Hunger First, my mom got involved with Hunger First of Kingsport, which is a food bank and clothing bank for needy families and the homeless in the city of Kingsport. And it was very important to my mother to do this every year. And it was important to my granny, who my grandmother lived through the Depression. So she knew what it was like to be hungry in hard times. And so we've always did this. But the day that my mom went to the hospital and she didn't come out, she went into the hospital and then went to hospice care, and then she passed away. But somehow that morning, so sick as she was, she got the energy and the strength to get online, and she ordered a box of food to feed a family for a week. And it came while my mom was in her last days in the hospital, a sweet lady that lived next door to my mom got the package and kept it. At my mom's service, her neighbor said, hey, I have a package. I don't know what it is. Your mom, it came to your mom's. I have it. We went and got it. 
and it was a box of food that I gave to Hunger First the day after my mom's service two years ago. That's how important this is to my family and to me. So Sunday, November 27th, Kingsport, Tennessee, Farmer's Market Pavilion, 308 Clinchfield Street. We will be doing our annual Thanksgiving event. I wish we could have did it Thanksgiving night. Couldn't work it out with the city to use the building on a holiday. But we're there on Sunday, November 27th. We're going to collect non-perishable food items for Hunger First. We're going to collect toys for homeless children in the city of Kingsport. And I was given a number, and I want to make sure that I get this number correctly because I was had him text this to me today, Michael Gillis, who's in charge of Hunger First. And he says, we have 120 homeless children in Kingsport. Mostly families that have been put out by the landlords to keep raising the rent. They cannot afford it. So we need 120 new toys, and we need as much food as anybody can bring to help hunger first. If you are listening and you can't come to the event and you want to help, donations.hungerfirst.org. If it's $5, if it's a dollar, if it's a $100, whatever it is, you are going to help change somebody's life, at least for a few moments. You're going to feed them. You're going to give a kid a toy. You're going to do something to help those in need. And that is what my Thanksgiving has been for the last several years. It's strange now, not wrestling on Thanksgiving night, uh, because hardly anybody runs on Thanksgiving night. But my goal is soon, hopefully next year, to be back running on Thanksgiving night. But big card, you can check it out, facebook.com slash Southern States Wrestling. Everything's up there. You can watch weekly episodes on our YouTube channel. Just search Southern States Wrestling. Look for the logo. Make sure you like and subscribe, and you can check out many of our Thanksgiving events throughout the years on Southern States Wrestling Network. Pivotshare.com. Holiday season's always big for wrestling in the Southeast, and it's always been a big wrestling time for me as a fan and as a promoter and as a wrestler. So I love Thanksgiving wrestling events. Cool. Uh, in the interest of fairness to to Virgil, Flair and Garvin did actually wrestle for the title in Baltimore on October 17th, 1987, although there was only 8,000 people in the arena. But tell me if you think this is a fair card to have somebody on top to try and draw. Samurai Warrior number two versus Italian Stallion. Kendall Wyndham versus Samurai Warrior number one. Mike Rotunda versus Black Bart. Sting versus the Terminator. The Binet Express versus the Lightning Express. And the Horseman versus the Rock and Roll Express. That's a good, but not uh, very good card, in my opinion. The attendance? 8,000. Okay. So those last two matches drew that 8,000. <laughs> There's not one other match on that card that drew anything else. 
Well, may, maybe the Midnight Express versus Armstrong and Horner for your Midnight Express fans. But I mean, yeah, certainly just, it's just. But if you like the Midnight, the Midnight no, but or, if, but if you like the Midnight Express, you like the Four Horsemen, and yeah. you like Flair. So I mean, it kind of goes together. But you know, I mean, it's it's certainly conspicuous that like Dusty and the Road Warriors on on this card, yeah, in Baltimore where they could draw. So I mean, eight thousand with that card is probably not horrible. No, not at all. That's funny, Drew. Yeah, no, it's funny. I went to look at cage match, and they don't have those Oregon matches on there, so I'm gonna have to try and look those up. But yeah, he actually does have like a, a sprinkling of title defenses. Oddly, one of them's on a UWF show in Kansas City. Oh, wow. Which is, well, let's see. So let me look at, okay. So here's the UWF card in Kansas City that drew 1900. This is the day before Baltimore. Douglas and Sting versus Pez Watley and Tiger Conway, the Jive Tones. The Canadian Kodiaks versus Unknown. The Sheep Herders versus the Lightning Express. Title change. Sheep Herders win the UWF titles back. I don't even remember that. Not either. Rod Simmons beat Black Bart. The Freebirds beat the Sheep Herders doing double duty, I guess. Gilbert and Taylor versus Douglas and Sting doing double duty. And then Flair and Garvin in a two out of three falls. So... Wonder if that's that's definitely. Hmm? Wonder if that was a TV. I wouldn't imagine in Kansas City at Kemper. Arena. Yeah, I wouldn't either. But I mean, just the fact you have so many working twice. That may be just a weird. Well, of course, it's also October in Kansas City. It could be the weather too. Yeah. But that's. But that's also weird to have the sheep herders work twice, and then they. And they won that they had the title change first on the card, and then they came back and worked again. And job. Oh, and they let's see. Oh, they worked. They worked the week before in St. Louis. Cool. Here's the week before in St. Louis that drew twenty three hundred. Canadian Kodiaks versus Kendall Windham and the Italian Stallion. Rick Steiner versus Shane Douglas. Bugsy McGraw versus the Terminator. Jimmy Valiant versus Black Bart. Ivan Koloff versus Ron Simmons. The Road Warriors versus the Sheep Herders. Barry Windham versus Terry Taylor. And Garvin versus Flair. It's, you know, I looked, and it certainly has the appearance of that being a split show. Yeah. But, like, the couple that I looked at before weren't actually split shows. So, like, on this card... This is St. Louis, and it says it's a Mid-Atlantic show, not Central States or anything. But on this card, there's no Dusty, there's no Rock and Roll, and there's no Midnights. Yeah, th- everything was just crazy at that time. Uh, they had so many – when they bought the UWF, they had to fulfill contracts with arenas and stuff, and guys were going all over the place. Let's see. Here's the day after St. Louis. They're in Greensboro. Oh, no attendance. That's not good. So that's 
T.J. Khan and Rocky King, Mike Rotunda and Mighty Wilbur, The New Breed versus T.J. Khan and the Warlord. So there's T.J. Khan working twice. Kevin Sullivan beats one of the Jeffers in the Mod Squad. Luger beats Sting. Gibson over Arn. Tully over Morton. And then Flair and Garvin. So, maybe Dusty's hurt. But there's like a suspicious lack of Dusty on any of these cards. Yeah. Well, there's Garvin defeating Arn in in Washington. So that's well. There's so there's Dusty. So Dusty's. Yeah. <laughs> how about this? So here, here's the thing. Why? Okay, Garvin's working in all the time. He's working every night. Yeah. In not title matches. Why not make them world title matches? Well, those were title matches. Those were at least billed as title matches on here because they're two out of three falls. Now here's the yeah. But by then, I'm pretty sure they've already been on TV saying that his he's not defending the belt. It's until Starrcade. Now, here's the interesting thing about this Washington show, which doesn't have attendance. Garvin Russell's Arn, allegedly for the world title, fourth from the top as the world title match. Yeah. Rock and, Rock and Rolls in Midnight's have a bunkhouse tag match. The Road Warriors beat Flair and Tully, and then Dusty beat Luger in a bull rope match. So there's two gimmick matches after him where he may or may not be defending the world title in the middle of oh, one, two, three. So he's in the fifth match. He's in the fifth match out of eight, allegedly defending the world title. See, Dusty was just burying him. He was doing everything that he could to bury him. But yeah, definitely not. Nothing to lay at the feet of of Garvin himself. Well, Bo, I want to thank you, as always, for doing the show. Sorry it's been so long since you've been on the last time. We'll have to make sure it's not that long next time. I always enjoy talking old-time wrestling. Cool, and this should be going out sometime before Thanksgiving. So to you, Bo, and to everyone else out there, happy holidays. Don't eat too much turkey, and we'll talk to you next time. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.